All right, everybody, gather around. Today we're journeying back in time to a land filled with brave warriors. Our hero's name is David, not much older than some of you, and his job, protecting fluffy friends from hungry wolves. One sunny morning, David was guarding his sheep, but carrying treats to his big brothers, fighting a giant enemy called Goliath. Can you say Goliath? Good job. Now, Goliath wasn't just tall, he was humongous, taller than your tallest teacher, covered in armor and clanking with heavy weapons like a walking armory. Every day, Goliath would stomp out and bellow with challenge. Send your bravest soldier. We'll settle this like heroes. But even the strongest warriors trembled at his shadow. David Munching on his lunch, saw fear cloud his brother's faces. He couldn't stand it. Why is everyone so scared? He asked. They explained about Goliath's challenge, and David's heart thumped like a drum. He knew he wasn't the, the strongest, but fear wasn't in his vocabulary. David marched right up to King Saul, the bravest of them all, and declared, I'll fight Goliath. The king chuckled. But you're just a shepherd boy. David, though small, stood tall. I may not have fancy armor, but I have something stronger. My faith in God. The king, seeing David's courage, agreed. David didn't need a sword or shield. He grabbed his trusty slingshot, the tool he used to protect his sheep. With a smooth swing and a silent prayer, he launched a stone right at Goliath's forehead. Pang! The stone hit its mark, and the mighty giant crumpled like a fallen tree. The sound of cheers erupted louder than any storm. David, the little shepherd boy, had defeated the giant warrior, all thanks to his bravery and trust in God. Now, remember kids, even the smallest among us can achieve great things. Just like David, face your challenges with courage, faith, and maybe even a well-aimed slingshot. Now, who wants to practice our aim with bean bags? <laughs> Wait, did you say giants? Welcome back to the Tipsy Theology Podcast, episode number 45. Now, today we're getting our wino on. <laughs> we're changing it up a little bit. Usually drink the whiskey or the cocktails. Today we're drinking the wine. Yes. You know, and the reason for this is because today... If the intro didn't tip you, we're talking about David and Goliath. <laughs> um, and so red wine symbolizes victory and strength, making an appropriate choice for celebrating David's victory, in my opinion, to show his courage and his resilience. <laughs> and uh, I picked this bottle in particular. It's called Urgency. It's a 2022 Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and I picked this one in particular because uh, the label, if you can see it, for those um, video watchers, you Patreon subscribers, um, it's kind of scaly. It looks like those little, it, it reminded me of Gal how Goliath's armor is typically depicted, you know, like those little scale, like U-shaped things. Um, so it's kind of cool. So I figured we'd give that a try. <laughs> and I, I love red wines. I'm, the, the only white wine I really like, I think, is... Um, what is it called? Riesling? Riesling? Riesling. Riesling. I think that's how it's said. Um, that one is really good. I don't really like a lot of other white wines. I think it's because it's the sweet thing. It's like some some things are just too sweet for me, and I can't do it. But reds, I, I love dry reds. And the old Cabernet. I, it gets, I get down with it. So let's give it a try. That's nice. That's nice. I don't remember. I think this one was like fifteen dollars. It's not bad. Um, I like to stick to the the cheap stuff. <laughs> Fifteen's. I feel like that's for the average consumer. That's pretty decent. 
Um, I'm trying to see what I taste. I'm trying to test my palate here. See if I can. I didn't. I didn't write down the tasting notes because I forgot. Um, but let's see what I can pull out of here. Definitely dry. Um, it's got a nice oaky afterbirth. <laughs> that means it tastes like a tree. Uh, no. Um, oh man, I'm not a good wine connoisseur. A good uh, sommelier. Is that what they call them? And I just taste red wine. <laughs> Let's see. What does it say on the back? Even before the urgency vineyard was planted, Calatian's instincts told him that the blend of volcanic soils would produce full, rich flavors, and the long, warm summer days would ripen the grapes perfectly. This special piece of dirt creates wines that do not require long aging. The lush flavors show well upon their release. That's cool. I didn't know that. Little volcanic stuff, little special dirt, not bad. <laughs> no, it is, um, hmm. I've been in the whiskeys for so long, I don't know how to drink wine anymore. And also, maybe it doesn't help. I'm drinking out of my mason jar, my trusty mason jar. Uh, man, if I could get a sponsorship with them, that would save me. <laughs> That's gonna be my merch run. Would you guys want? Would you guys, <laughs> if I got branded Mason drinking Mason glasses, Mason jars, like the little ones? Um, that's how I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, you guys would like that. <laughs> I'll do it. That'd be sweet. I would love to do that because this is legitimately how I drink most of my stuff now. Um, hmm. Really trying to pull out like some flavors here. It's not like a whiskey, but it is like it's pretty subtle. Like it goes down. It's not like, Ugh, but it's it's dry, but it's not overly dry in my opinion. Um, <laughs> it tastes wet going down. <laughs> um, it does. It is a pretty lush flavor, I would say. Um, but it's not. It doesn't like take over your palate. It doesn't take it over it kind of just like sits there nicely yeah it's good i would say it's good it's a solid it's a solid choice of wine it's a solid choice i recommend it um especially for this episode because the label like i said looks like scale like armor <laughs> and anyone who's listened to this long enough knows that i make most of my purchasing decisions based on the packaging what does it look like? How does this, uh, and then we see if it holds up. And a lot of times it does. Now, how far can we stretch that metaphor? Um, probably not very. <laughs> you know, the way I think about it is that something worthwhile is going to take the time to make sure it, it, it's, it looks good. Um, hmm, man. That might be uh, too far to take that analogy. <laughs> Don't take that out of context. But I feel like if someone's made a nice bottle of wine, a nice glass of whiskey, they're going to want to put it in something nice too. Isn't that beautiful? Eh, who knows? <laughs> anyway, we're talking about David and Goliath. And one of the big things, you know, I like I told you guys, I want to talk about some of the weird stuff in here. And so I really want to dive into that. And I think that this is a really good um, approach to that because Goliath is probably the most notable giant from the Bible that people would know. Um, and we recognize him that way. We call him the, the, a giant. <laughs> but I feel like, at least for me, there is like a, a disconnect that we have there between like with what, what does that actually mean? What is it actually, what is a giant? Is he just really tall like is he just a tall like one freakishly tall guy well that's a good question and that's something that we're going to dive into here as we unpack the story of david and goliath um in contrast to the bible the the sunday school telling of it that i i read earlier for the intro here um i think there's a lot of things in there that aren't correct and so 
I want to go through and show why I think that, um, what's the biblical evidence for that, and uh, we'll go from there. So anyway, in the Bible, it says that Goliath stood about six cubits and one span tall, which is approximately nine foot six, or nine foot nine, actually, I'm sorry. And uh, that's a tall fella. That's a tall guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see people that are six foot and it's like, okay, that's a, or six foot four, six foot six, you know, it's like, that's a tall guy. Now imagine three feet above that. That's huge. That's a very tall person. I think what is the average ceiling in a house is what, like eight feet? So you're something like two feet above that. It's like, that's a big old boy. <laughs> and so what's interesting about this is that there is actually debate about how tall Goliath really was. Um, and so um, some people argue that he was actually four cubits in one span, which is closer to six foot six. And the reason for this, it's not just out of nowhere, but there are actually some texts that um, that actually have this written. And a lot of this, I believe it's the Dead Sea Scrolls, have four foot or four cubits in one span written instead of six in one. Um, but the majority, as far as I remember from what I read, is a lot of Greek texts from the um, Septuagint. That those are the ones that have um, that written down there, and so although it seems like the earlier texts, I think, or the the earlier texts we date show four cubits in one span, I think people are saying that it's. I think I have it confused. It was kind of confusing when I read it too, but there is a consensus that although some texts disagree that six cubits in one span is probably more accurate. Um, so there are a few reasons for why it may have been different. So part of it is that um, David or Goliath, if he was um, taller, that this possibly could have been to highlight David's victory, that he's taking, he's accomplishing this he's victorious over something that is so mountainous um and then if he was shorter the six foot six this could possibly be to highlight how fearful saul was um but the one thing i want to look at the one thing i want to look at when we see this is okay what are the other clues because right now we're just looking at these two in there so i want to see like what's the reality in here and is there anything we can pull so i i think there is and so um, let's look at Goliath's loadout. You're like, what else does it say about Goliath and the the size of him and what he looked like? And we do have two very interesting things. It actually tells us the um, the weight of his um, the coat of mail that he was wearing, his armor on his body, and the weight of the tip of his spear. Weird measurements. <laughs> Weird things to measure. But so the, the the chest plate he was wearing, the coat of mail he was wearing, which was made of bronze, that said that it weighed about 5,000 shekels. Now, I don't know about you, but shekels mean nothing to me. <laughs> I don't know what this shekel is. Um, and then it said that the tip of his spear was um, 600 shekels. Now, I went ahead and did some research here. A shekel... <laughs> It's a fun word to say. <laughs> uh, a shekel is a unit of measurement that was used at the time. And so it does range. They found different different weights for a shekel. And this goes from anywhere from 0.35 ounces, 0.35 ounces, to 0.47 ounces. Although it seems like a lot of people use um, kind of an average in between there of 0.4 ounces. So I'm going to go ahead and use that number as well might as well not be different. So if the coat of mail he, he was wearing weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze, that would be equivalent to about 125 pounds. And the tip of his spear was 600 shekels of iron, which would be about 15 pounds. Now, totaling this all up, that's 140 pounds. 
that's a lot of weight to be just carrying it around like that. You think about it like 15 pounds on the end of a spear. That's heavy. That's heavy. Uh, yeah. I, I think about, um, what is it? The old martial arts movie, the, um, how is it called? The 36th Chamber of Shout, 36th, 36th, 6th, 36th Chamber of Shaolin. <laughs> I remember in that, because they have to like ring a bell, and they're like working on their, their forearm strength and their arm strength. And they've got like this um, this long pole with, I think it was like a five pound weight in the end of it. And they've got to ring this bell over and over. And it's so difficult, and he's got to build up to it. And that's all I think about when I when I hear that with like 15 pounds on the end of the spear. I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> and this weight, let's not forget, the 140 pounds, this is ignoring his bronze helmet, his bronze leggings, the armor on his legs, his sword, the javelin that he had between his shoulders, which was also made of bronze, and the shaft of his spear, which is said to be like, massive like the size of i think it was like the weight of like a weaver's beam which is like what is he just carrying like a two by four <laughs> it's crazy like a 15 a 15 pound spearhead that's huge that's huge and also his shield that's a lot of weight and i think uh it's fair to say i think it's reasonable to say that all these things added added up his he this could his gear could have weighed Upwards of 280 to 300 pounds, maybe more. Like, that's just so much weight to carry. So let's put that in perspective, because is it a lot of weight to carry? Let's put it in perspective. So I looked at soldiers today in the U.S. military, and today a typical soldier would carry between 60 to 100 pounds of gear. Uh, a little bit different than 300. <laughs> and But sometimes... They would carry upwards of 150 pounds to two, as much as 200 pounds. That's a lot. Um, but this does come at the cost of combat performance um, and like their effectiveness in battle. Uh, so there were studies by the Army and the Marine Corps. Um, those studies cite Marshall's book, Soldiers Load and the Mobility of a Nation as the go-to source for optimal loadout weight. That is like the nerdiest thing I think I've ever said on here. <laughs> you think someone's going to write a book called Soldiers Load and Mobility of the Nation. Like, all right, just tell me what the book's about. <laughs> Don't be so mysterious. <laughs> and Marshall, the author in here, concludes that a soldier could optimally carry 33% of his or her body weight. So right now, the average weight Height and weight of a soldier in the U.S. military is six foot and 184 pounds. And so this means that they can optimally carry 60 pounds. This is the men, by the way, not women. Um, they can carry 60 pounds before sacrificing combat performance. Okay, so we're talking about 60 pounds for optimal versus... 300 pounds. That's a lot of difference. <laughs> Especially when someone's carrying 200 pounds, that's more than they weigh. If they weigh, if on average, 184 pounds, and they're carrying 200, that's more than, they're carrying themselves, basically. Someone bigger than them. Um, which is possible. People are capable of lifting a lot of weight. But for how long? And also, how effective can you be while under that amount of load? Not very. So, um, 1 Samuel 17.33 says, And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine, talking about Goliath, to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Goliath was a skilled warrior. You know, he wasn't someone who's just like, you know, just walking around like, hey, Buster. Like, no, he was he was actually a skilled warrior who probably had been in many battles before this time. He has so much training under his belt. Um, and he's huge. <laughs> He'd have to be. To carry 300 pounds? 
Oh my gosh. So Goliath was, um, yeah, he was a skilled man of war. If his gear was within the optimal range, the 33% that we talked about, he could have weighed between 500 and 800 pounds, depending on the weight of the armor specifically. So you're telling me, <laughs> if you believe that he's six foot six, that this seasoned warrior is coming in at six foot six and 500 pounds? That man, the only thing he's seasoning is his morning bagel. <laughs> like, <laughs> that man doesn't fight. <laughs> he fights for his life, that's for sure, because he's severely overweight. I'm not fat shaming. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying that you don't normally think of someone that size weighing that much being a skilled warrior. Those are things you don't really put together. Especially in hand-to-hand combat like this. He's fighting with a spear. You got a little bit of distance. But he also has a sword and a javelin, which is like a, like a shorter knife. And he's he's fighting people like this. It's like it would take him five minutes to swing his sword <laughs> with that much weight on him if he came if he was weighing that much, carrying that much. So if he was six foot six and within today's ideal weight standard, he'd be about 225 pounds. That would be where he, how much he should weigh, ideally. When you consider like diets at the time and the access to food, even though they were probably a, a, a good sized nation, there probably wasn't a lot of excess for them to, to overindulge themselves with. So, (laughs) um, even then, it's like if he's 225 pounds, how can we expect him to, to carry weight that is at least his weight and probably more? You know, he's not shooting a gun. He's, swinging a, he's fighting with a spear and a sword. Uh, yeah, it would take him a lot of time to actually be able to swing that sword. And then considering his recovery time after he finally gets to, to it, like, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't seem to follow through. So considering all of this, I think that it's far more likely that Goliath was closer to nine foot nine, weighing about five hundred plus pounds. I think that just makes more sense. The other side of that, I'm going for some more wine. This wine is really smooth. It's going down really nicely. I like it. I like it. He likes it. <laughs> Yeah, the idea of Goliath being six foot six, um, when we consider these other variables, just seems utterly ridiculous. Um, it, it's far more reasonable, I think, to say that he is closer to ten feet tall, carrying that much weight. He would have to weigh, a, you know, a significant amount, while still being able to be effective in battle. So. Let's look at some of the biblical biblical context here to add some more perspective to this. Um, so first, we're going to look at King Saul. So First Samuel nine two says that Saul, from his head, my gosh, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So the average height of ancient Israelites isn't necessarily concrete; like it isn't determined. I've seen some people say, oh, they were four feet tall. <laughs> Upwards of some people being like, they were eight feet tall. Now, that's a big old wide range, and I think it's a little ridiculous. Yes, we do. There are cultures and civilizations that where the people were very short, sometimes down to like four foot two. <laughs> that is a real thing. But when we look at that area and other people groups in that area, um, like the Egyptians, the Romans, and even uh, you know medieval knights, which were a little bit further north, but they were kind of all in, from this that region. The average height there historically seems to be closer to about five foot five. So they still weren't giants. They weren't the six foot four, six foot six, seven foot beasts that we see today sometimes playing basketball quite well, I might say. 
<laughs> Better than I can at five foot seven. Tom Cruise, bless up. <laughs> Short kings unite. <laughs> oh man! So the average person there, I think it's I think it's reasonable to say they were probably about five foot five. Um, and so um, there are some cultures, yeah, some shorter, some taller. Um, even with the Romans, we see like the Gauls, which are more like the France area, they were, um, if I remember right, bigger and taller than them. They were a bit scarier. <laughs> but they not like nine feet, you know, not ten feet tall. Um, yeah. So with this in mind, Saul could have been anywhere. If we go on the short end of five foot tall, he could have been um, at least six feet tall to six foot five if we put them at five foot five because uh, you think if he was shoulder shoulders upward taller than everyone that's like we're talking about a, about about a foot right there if we think about a head i'm just i measured mine <laughs> it's like 10 10 to 12 inches somewhere in there from our shoulders up yours might vary but he was definitely i think he was definitely six foot or above and if that's true, he should not have feared a six foot six Goliath carrying three hundred pounds of armor around. You know, it, it, when you look at it like that way, it'd be like a lion fighting a beached whale. There's not much competition. <laughs> like one of them is very much out of their element and disadvantaged. Because <laughs> so, they're both. Like Saul is no no um he's no newbie to battle. Like he fought the Amorites. He fought a lot of people. He's a warrior. And you're like, here's a guy who's about your height. Um, and he's also significantly overweight, <laughs> severely overweight. Um, you're gonna have to fight him. He's like, Oh, I'm too scared. <laughs> like, uh, sorry, that seems utterly ridiculous to me. Um he, it would definitely highlight his fear, that's for sure, <laughs> to be afraid in that way. <laughs> you know, Saul has armor himself, uh, and David was actually his armor bearer um, at the time, which is an interesting point that we'll, we'll get into. Um, so, for Saul's probably not carrying 300 pounds of armor around with him either. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about David now. So David is often described as a teenager during this. Some people will be like, oh, he's like 14 years old. <laughs> uh, I think that's how the story is often portrayed, and that's how it was portrayed earlier um, in the Sunday School version that I read. And this, from what I can tell, comes from Saul calling him a youth. Now, if you remember back on our Whiskey Wednesday episode about Elisha, there was the word na'ar, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but it's the word. Um, it's the same word that we see here, youth. And uh, David could have been, and most likely was, closer to 20 years old at the time. So he wasn't like this little shrimp of a boy. He was probably about the same height. He was probably pretty fully grown. He was probably similar height to um, King Saul. Um and the reason that I say this, too, is because we say, oh, he didn't wear Saul's armor because it didn't fit him. It's like, well, wait, why would, Saul, why would Saul offer him armor, the armor that he's the bearer of? He's the armor bearer. He carries it with, for Saul. He takes care of it for Saul. He's going to be like, yeah, go put that on, shrimp. <laughs> if he's a child and he's like five foot something and Saul's over here six foot five staring down at him going like, Put my armor on. <laughs> like, no, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I think it's more reasonable that they were f similar in stature. They were similar in physique, similar in height. Um, it, would, it would be kind of useless for him to say, oh, try my armor on, <laughs> knowing that it wouldn't fit him. Um, and also, in 2 Samuel 5, 4, 
Um, it says that David was 30 when he became um, king. And so when we consider this, and we consider some other things, the timeline that I look at um, is that he was probably closer to like 16, 15 maybe when he was anointed. Um, so he would have been a little bit younger and less impressive than his brothers because he was still a child. But as he became more fully grown and developed more, he would have grown into that. And that would, I think, account for some time gap between his anointing, between um, him getting in, coming into Saul's service as, the, as his lyre player, um, playing the harp for him, and becoming his armor bearer, and uh, David and Goliath, and then waiting for his chance to become king. I think that that's a reason, a more reasonable timeline than saying he was 14 when this happened. <laughs> Still a long time. It's a long time. But there's just a lot of things that don't seem to add up. And also, when we look at the text, it doesn't say that the armor didn't fit. What David says in this is that he hadn't tested it. In other words, he wasn't used to using the armor. He wasn't, he wasn't trained and fighting with this armor on. I think that tells a very different tale. Um, you know, he's used to fighting lions and fighting bears in shepherd's clothes as a shepherd. <laughs> you know, which is what he did for his father. He took care of the flock. And so, oh, sorry. I keep hitting the mic. Um, so with that in mind... He's not used to wearing armor because uh, I don't know if you've seen a lot of shepherds, but they're usually not walking around wearing a full suit of armor. Not in my experience. <laughs> so um, putting this in perspective so far, in the, the, the point that I'm trying to make here, ultimately, and we'll get into the Philistines, is that Goliath was not a shrimp. <laughs> he was not just like... Uh, a six foot tall guy who's just like, hey, you little four foot shrimpy boys, or staring at someone his own size, saying like, hey, hey you, because the gear that he's wearing is he'd be significantly over encumbered and unable to properly fight, if fight at all. <laughs> and uh, Saul and David being around the same stature, the same height, the same physique. It wouldn't be that scary. <laughs> um, or it shouldn't be. I mean, it's scary to fight anybody. It's like, yeah, there's a chance you're going to die for sure. Um, but yeah, it just it doesn't seem to make as much logical sense when we put it in those perspectives. Um, so what I'm saying here and what we've kind of historically said is Goliath was a giant. So, if he was a Philistine, who were the Philistines? That's a great question. And Genesis 10.14 um, identifies the Kasluhim, it has in parentheses, from whom the Philistines came. Now, the Philistines' lineage is traced to Mizraim, which is associated in Egypt, which we see in that same verse, as it gives a list of the different people, the genealogies of um, descendants of Noah. And uh, we see Egypt there, which is the translation of uh, Mizraim. So um, although it seems that the Philistines originated, originated from Crete, culturally where they're from, um, as they're often identified with Kaftor, which is the Hebrew name for Crete, and um, at least in the island of Crete, but it seems that it could possibly also um, refer to the entire... Aegean region, and those are coming. That's coming from verses um, Amos nine seven and Jeremiah forty seven four. If you want to look that up, um, and so the other thing is that there's a lot of cultural connections between Philistine culture, their um, their pottery, their architecture, their burial procedures, all these kinds of things are very much related to early Greek. Um, 
And so there is that very close connection that is tied between the two there. And I find that actually even more interesting as well. So with this, 2 Samuel, we're talking about, we're talking about giants here. We're going to talk about more giants. So it's like, okay, there's, there's Goliath. I, can, I think sometimes we kind of ignore the rest because the Old Testament's a little weird. And we're like, mm, let's stay away from that. We're diving into it. Don't you worry. 2 Samuel 21, 18 also speaks... Oh, man, this is a word I've only read, but not read out loud. <laughs> that said, Sibakai, 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 S-I-B-B-E-C-A-I. You can tell me in the comments how to pronounce that. <laughs> Striking down Saf. So Saf was, um, is identified in the text as one of the descendants of the giants. What? <laughs> huh? So these giants, the giants, the descendants of the giants that it's talking about, are identified as the sons of Rapha, a warrior class of giants who fought for the Philistines. So the Philistines, looking at their timeline, it appears as if they would have traveled from Crete or maybe that region, that coastal region of the Aegean region, and had settled in the land of the Raphaim. And, or at least were very closely connected and shared, um, you know, there's shared space with them to a place where they would have enough treaties or um, working together enough that they uh, fought together. <laughs> that the, Phil- that the, um, the sons of Rapha, the giants, were fighting for the Philistines. Kind of interesting. <laughs> So all the Philistines, this to say, all the Philistines weren't giants. You know, Goliath, in that in the story of David and Goliath, he was the only giant identified there. It doesn't seem as though all everyone there was a giant, because after he came tumbling down, they left. Now, if I was just as big as him, I'd be like, okay, cool. This guy can take one of us out. Let's see if he can take 15 of us out, or maybe 400. <laughs> I think they're, um, it's reasonable to say, and to assume in this case, that they were probably all normal height. <laughs> and David took out their biggest guy. David also being a pretty big guy. So, um, yeah, the giants were people that fought for, or beings, we can say, ah, that fought for the Philistines. So Rapha, that's an interesting word. So this is the word, it's the word used here, and it's translated as giants. And the plural for Rapha is Raphaim. Mm, does that word sound familiar? It might to some. To some, it might not. Um, so Og was an Amorite by birth and the king of Bashan and a notable Raphaim. Oh, we hear a lot about Og, especially in the Old Testament. Um, Goliath is related to this kingdom, as well as the Philistines. Interesting. And um, the the land of the Raphaim, that was a pretty big thing. Og was the, the king, and I think it was like 60 cities that they had. It's a lot of cities. <laughs> they covered a lot of ground. <laughs> they were notable figures, and especially... If you're 10 feet, maybe plus, uh, you could do some damage, especially if there's more than one of you. <laughs> you could do some serious damage. Um, so although there's not seemingly a direct link, there seems to be some kind of connection between the, uh, the Raphaim, the Anakim, and the Nephilim. Oh, Nephilim. That might trigger some stuff for some more people. <laughs> That's the one we're more familiar with. So the Nephilim were offspring of the sons of God and, and the daughters of men. So possibly referring to a divine council in the Old Testament. Now we're getting tasty. <laughs> now we're getting into it here. <laughs> So, I want to first say, as we're getting into this, 
because we're going to start talking about the Nephilim here in a second and kind of looking through what were they? Who were they? Where did this come from? Um, what I'm what I'm saying, and what I'm what, what we're hearing, what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do here is let's follow a train of logic. I'm not trying to, um, in, I'm not intentionally in any way. If I am, please someone correct me. <laughs> but I'm not trying to read into the text here. I'm not trying to apply my assumptions because even in the story of David and Goliath, that alone, there were things that I understood about the story, how I thought about the story, that when I went ahead and read it and dove into it a little more, I realized weren't true. For example, like the height thing with David and the armor, it's like I never thought about this until I started looking into it. I always assumed that David's like, yeah, this armor doesn't fit, bro. It's I'm too small. But when we think about it, it's like, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't really kind of line up. That doesn't line up. And also thinking about the height of Saul and the height of David or even his age, it's like all these things kind of changed for me how I viewed the story. And so the point of me saying this and emphasizing it more here is to say that we need to read the text carefully and we need to follow logically what makes sense here. Not what we want it to be, not what we hope it would be, but what does it seem to actually be saying? And let's work from there. So based on what we've gone through, and I hope I've given enough evidence here to show that it's more reasonable to say that Goliath was nine feet nine, nine foot nine. He was tall, <laughs> nearly 10 feet as opposed to six foot six. I think it's more reasonable to argue that he was much larger than six foot. Um, and when we look through this, these, these ties and these connections with giants and even looking into the Nephilim now, it's like, okay, let's see what it says. We don't, and that's the thing. We don't have to be scared of what the Bible says. Um, truth is truth is truth. <laughs> Let's not be scared of the Bible. Let's not be afraid of the Bible. Let's not other people scare us of what the Bible says or what it might say. Because if we believe it's true, then let's look at it honestly. Because if it's true, it's true. But if we're scared of it and we're going to run away from it or just throw a presupposition on it, now we got an issue because we don't actually know what it says. So what I want to do here, and I'm going to walk through it the way I, I processed it, the way I thought about it, is, okay, who were these people based on what does the Bible present them to be? Um, not these extra biblical things. What does the Bible, I keep hitting the mic, what does the Bible say? What makes sense based on the language and the context that we know of that time, and what what does the text say? That's really what I'm getting at here. So, are we ready? <laughs> so let's ask the question. If if the Bible has identified Goliath as an unusually tall person, and he's connected to unusually tall people, who were they? Were they actually just tall people? Were they something else? Otherworldly, maybe? Maybe a mix? Good question. <laughs> so, since we're talking about the descendants of the Nephilim, the Nephilim here, this question largely hinges, I believe, on who were the Nephilim. So, let's travel back to Genesis 6, in particular 6-4. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Um, someone is singing out there. Really going for it. Dang. Okay, sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys could hear that. Probably not. Someone was really going to town out there. <laughs> so... Um, when the sons, so the Nephilim, let me start over. 
Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the big questions that stick out to me when I read this, and hopefully for you as well, who were the sons of God? What does came into mean? And what does men what does men of renown mean? Days of old. What does that mean? What is that? Is that important? It seems specific and it seems weird. That's why it sticks out to me. That I think that's the big thing that we that is important to look at, especially when we're when we're looking at text. If it's weird, if it stands out, pay attention to it. Because <laughs> there's probably something to it. So let's start with the beginning. How is the phrase sons of God used throughout Scripture? I think that's a very important thing for us to kind of identify this in context. And in the context being, how is it used? So not surprisingly with language. Language is language. <laughs> it's never changed. Um, well, it has changed. That's the thing. <laughs> but the idea of it changing hasn't changed. Hmm, weird. Um, so there is a shift. Can you guys hear that? Someone is just singing on the top of their lungs out there. That is not normal. Kind of freaking me out a little bit, I'll be honest. Um, so there does seem to be a shift from the Old Testament usage of the phrase sons of God to the New Testament. Uh, and this is significant. Um, but I think there's also a, a very clear reason. And so let's look at the Old Testament. So Genesis 6-4 is the first time that we see this phrase appear, and it shows up in contrast to daughters of man. So these two phrases used together in this way seem to be important in distinguishing between human mortals and something else, something maybe more ethereal, with the, the, the word God being used there. So um, there are arguments that try to identify the sons of God as offspring of Seth. Um, short story, I think those arguments are pretty flimsy, saying that the sons of God were just humans who were godly, um, the sons of Seth, these godly humans, uh, especially in light of later uses, particularly later uses of the phrase sons of God, particularly in Job, where the sons of God appear three times. It's Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and 38, 7. The sons of God present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan comes, along, uh, comes among them. In this context, the sons of God appear to be a sort of divine counsel. Ooh, maybe more trigger words for people. So sorry, so sorry. <laughs> But don't worry, we're about to get weirder. And even beyond this episode. <laughs> this is the fun stuff that maybe uh, pushes some buttons for people. And I think that's a good thing. I think we should be having these conversations and look at these things honestly. Because it's also really fun, too. <laughs> so one of the kickers, I think, um, for many people, and myself included, is Psalm 82. In this, we see the phrase, sons of Elion. Elian, or sometimes trans translated, sons of the Most High. Now, Elian is considered synonymous with Yahweh. So the sons of Elian and the sons of God are most likely the same group. We're talking about the same kinds of people here. Oh, that one stuck around. I'm throwing my paper off as I go through it because it's fun. <laughs> now, in this psalm, Psalm 82, Yahweh is being exalted as the head of the divine council, of a divine council of gods. The audience is called sons of Elion, or sons of the Most High. And uh, they are it, is, it is said in the thing that you are gods, speaking to the sons of Elion. So in the psalm, the psalmist is actually accusing the sons of Elion um, for having, um, for judging unjustly, and showing partiality to the wicked. In verse 7, he goes so far to say, Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Dang! That's harsh. That is that's a lot. So, who were these guys? 
who were these guys? You know what I mean? It's like it, it with the identifications in there and how it's used, it, it seems to, to point that these were not just humans. This was probably something else going on here. We're talking about something else. Um, but so, however, New Testament, some verses might be popping up in some people's minds. Um, and don't worry, I got you. <laughs> in the New Testament, we see this phrase, the sons of God, used in a much different context. In Matthew 5, 9, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls the peacemakers sons of God. In Luke's version of the same sermon, Jesus says, those who love their enemies and do good will be sons of the Most High. Interesting. That's Luke 6, 35. So those who have died and entered the resurrection are referred to as sons of God. Luke 20, 36. And according to the Apostle Paul, sons of God became so through faith and in relationship to the Son of God and by the Spirit of God. And we get that from Romans 8, 14, 19, and Galatians 3, 26. Now, this shift in usage seems to be not saying that, oh, as humans the whole time, but it seems to show a shift in the elevation of man um, that is redeemed through Christ, that you are being elevated to this position. These, When we look at the psalmist, he's accusing these sons of God for corruption and judging corruptly. Judging, un- that guy is still singing out there. Judging unjustly. <laughs> That's so distracting. Judging unjustly. And if we're to look at that being their failure, they failed. Um, God is redeeming man to say, hey, <laughs> I got put I got a new spot for you to take over. <laughs> um so okay, next question. What does came into mean? Now, this is where we're going to get a little above a PG-13 rating probably. And it might be um I will say trigger warning for those. <laughs> we're going to talk about some not in details at any in any length, but we're going to say some words, bring up some ideas that are a little not kid-friendly. <laughs> um, and so this word came into would basically be translated or could mean or would mean um, to enter or access. And so at the end of the day, it says that the daughters of man bore them children, the sons of God children. So we know something had to happen there. There was a little bit of a uh, little fooling around going on there. <laughs> So some translations, like the NIV or NLT, translate this came into, um, for the NIT, NIV, it says that they went to, and the NLT says had intercourse with. So I think that these translations are a little bit disingenuous um, to use, and especially when we consider how else the phrase is used throughout Scripture in this context. And uh, Joseph has been coming up a lot lately, hasn't he? <laughs> Can't stop talking about that guy, apparently. <laughs> and uh, that's the one in particular I want to bring up. Uh, where we see in Genesis 39, 14, Potiphar's wife accuses David of sexual of attempt sexual misconduct. Um, and the phrase used, the ESV uses the same phrase, came into, but the, N- uh, the NIV remains pretty tame, and it says to sleep with, he attempted to sleep with her, but the NLT gets a little spicy, and this is that warning I was talking about. It translates this exact same phrase as to rape me. He attempted to rape me. Now, the short answer is that when we consider all of this, and even the idea of the words came into sounds very aggressive. You know, it doesn't sound like this very loving, like you're sleeping with somebody. <clears throat> it sounds very forceful. It sounds very aggressive. That's how it comes across to me. That's how. That's what I get when I see it. Even when we put it in light of how it's being used in other parts of Scripture, Genesis 39 and 14 very specifically is the example I used. So why is this important to mention? It's important to mention because um, it goes a step further to say that these aren't just godly men <laughs> from the line of Seth. Um, because to hold this view, then you have to argue that these godly men 
went so far as to commit rape. That's not a really a godly action. <laughs> That's not something I would attribute to a godly person. So, um, there is something here that's very uh, aggressive. Something, and there's a big distinction that we even brought up here between the um, the daughters of man and the sons of God, and how it's used in context in the rest of the Old Testament. It seems to point to, to me, the way I'm seeing this, and there's other things that we can look at for sure, but for this example, and what I've brought up is, to me, it seems to point very clearly that, or at least in some way, that there were some type of heavenly beings that came down to earth and said, we like your girls, <laughs> and they forced themselves upon them, and they were children as a result of that. And that, those offspring are what we call the Nephilim, or what the Bible calls the Nephilim. And I'm sure a lot of you aren't liking what you're hearing with that, Um and I think, again, like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of presupposed ideas that we bring in when we consider these topics. You know, I have them too as well. As well. I'm not exempt from assumptions or presuppositions. But, you know, I want to do my absolute best to be very honest about the text and what does the text say and follow a train of logic, a train of thought, and asking the right question is to challenge my own beliefs and assumptions to make sure that I'm not, I'm not limiting... To make sure I'm not limiting myself in any of these things as best as I can. And one of the better ways for that to even happen, too, is for us to have this conversation together. You know, I, I, I say this all the time, and I, I really do mean it. I want us all to have this conversation together. And even if it's just to prompt you to have a conversation with your pastor, with your friend, with your spouse, anybody, it's like even if it's not me, even if I don't know it's happening. I want us to um, think rightly of what has been written and to know what that is because that helps us, I think, in a lot of ways to view our relationship to God better and it, it views um, our relationship to the world better. What, what, is, what is happening what does the Bible say? So at the end of this, to me, it seems much more reasonable that Goliath was a giant descended from the Nephilim through the Raphaim, who are um, from these heavenly beings that forced their way upon human women. So like I said, I'm sure a lot of you have thoughts, and boy, oh boy, Am I ready to hear them? <laughs> and I would love to, I, I really do. I, I, I'm not being just blowing smoke up, but I, I really do mean this. Um, reach out to me on Instagram. I, I post stuff on there too. Uh, little highlights are here and extra content. And I, I really want to keep this conversation going with you guys and have us have this conversation with each other together. So you can check me out on Instagram uh, at tipsy, the tipsy underscore theology, or if you prefer, you can send me an email, uh, tipsy theology podcast at gmail.com. And if you love the show and you like what we're doing and you want to be a part of helping it to grow so that way I can continue to, to, to bring better and better content to you guys. Um, that's my goal. And that's what I want to do. You can consider, please consider, um, supporting, the podcast on Patreon, patreon.com slash tipsytheology. The link for all of these will be in the description. And um, I'm sure some of you might be asking. You're like, well, wait, 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 hold on. You said there were three questions from that verse that you said. And you're right. Good on you for remembering that. I'm proud of you. You should be proud of yourself. <laughs> and the question that I didn't answer in this was who were the men of renown? So, good enough for remembering. 
And I'm sorry to leave any cliffhanger. That's a topic for another episode. <laughs> and we're going to dive a bit more into that and another time on who were these men of renown. So thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you hopefully sooner rather than later.